Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 90, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And if you are a new listener to the Retro Hour podcast, you have got 90 episodes to catch up on, but... Oh God, that's a lot, isn't it? <laughs> can't believe we're up to 90 already. Yeah. But if you have just found us for the first time, welcome on board. Now, the way the show works is, uh, Ravi and I do the show every single week. It comes out on a Friday. We go through all the stories that have been making the headlines in the world of retro. And when we tell that to people, people are always like, well, what news can there possibly be in retro gaming? Hey, the mainstream news has got a lot of news about retro gaming at the moment. It's it's overspilling, guys. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we did an interview with a you know TV journalist and magazine. That's always a question they ask, and they're always amazed yeah. by how many new developments they are. And you know, we, we have too much news for the show. Well, look at it. You know, Sonic Mania yeah. is one of the top games at the moment. Who would have thought a, a Sonic game of that kind of two Dness would be uh, that high up? Well, look at the games I've been playing over the last month or so. It's been Sonic Mania. Micro Machines and Crash Bandicoot. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> You're living in the past. <laughs> but the future as well. Yeah, yeah, it's mad. So we're going to go through uh, all the stories that have been making the headlines this week in just a bit. And then in the second half of the show, I mean, if I'm honest, I think this is where our show really comes into its own. This is the unique thing about this show. We have guests and we have high caliber guests. And this guest is of one of the highest calibers. Uh, he's Gary Penn. And he originally worked for Zap64, but he also worked for PC Format. He also worked for Amiga Power. He worked for The One magazine. He was the editor of The One for for around a year. He was a, the full editor of The One, and that was a cool year that was like 89 to 90, yeah. so peak times. But he also worked on Frontier Elite. Do you remember that game? Oh, David Brabham. That was a long-awaited sequel to Elite, wasn't it? Procedural and, Generation. Well, I remember, you know, I think I got that on a magazine cover disc, and it was just that introduction animation. And you know where the music's playing and you see the ship. Yeah. Epic, wasn't it, that opening? Oh, God, it was so good. And then I, his name pops up, doesn't it? At the front? Yeah, 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 totally. And then he moved on to a really small company called DMA Designs. Never heard of them. Yeah, yeah. And then kind of became the creative director for Grand Theft Auto. And, you know, they did some really cool stuff with Grand Theft Auto. You're going to find out in this interview, you know, they did GTA 1, but they did 2 where they introduced, like... Kill Frenzy, gang areas. They also did GTA Landon, which was a, yeah, yeah. a 1960s <laughs> version, which is really cool. And little do you know, they actually tried to do GTA 3D three times DMA did. On the PlayStation 1. Yeah, yeah. so we're going to find out about those. I think it's fair to say he's got quite a, quite a history there, hasn't he? Lots oh, of interesting yeah. stuff to <laughs> yeah. talk about. So Gary Penn is our special guest on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. And like we said, the show does come out every single Friday. And this hasn't been disputed yet. We've said it a couple of times on the show that we are probably, probably the world's only weekly retro gaming podcast. Yeah, I'm not going to get it uh, printed on a T-shirt or put in stone yet. But um, yeah, if you find any other guys, then uh, please let us know. Yeah, but you know, we've put this out there a couple of times. No one's kind of took the challenge yet. So, But the only way we can keep doing this show week in, week out, and also get to stuff like, you know, these massive events that we've got coming up. There's a lot more that we're planning as well. Oh God, the winter schedule is crazy. We're going to be going international events we're going to be you know in uk events it's going to be great well that's that's the aim isn't it really want to do more of this in uh, 2018 as well get out there and see our fans and meet our listeners and get to all these events that are all happening all over the place but the only way we can keep doing this and the podcast every single week is thanks to your very generous support now we do have a couple of little buttons on the front page of our website theretrohour.com. There is a PayPal donation button there and one for Bitcoin as well. Now, obviously, you know, we appreciate any donations that we get. It is completely optional, but every penny, every cent, every dollar, every dime that we receive all goes back 100% into the running of this show. And we want to say thank you so much for your donations this week, making the Retro Hour Hall of Fame, Steve Jukes, Linus Johansson, Tom Vanderweil, Bart Taha. Who all made donations into the running of the Retro Hour podcast this week. Thank you so much, guys. It really means a lot to us. And you can do the same by heading to our website, theretrohour.com. And actually, there's been quite a few website hits over the last week or so. You think there's something big running there at the moment? Oh, yeah. Well, it might be our competition, you know, to play Expo, which is, I'd say it's probably the UK's biggest gaming show and, and it's just rammed full of stuff it's not just retro gaming there's also cosplay drone racing they're yeah. going to be doing drone racing this year there's all kinds of stuff Ravi's always around the cosplay bit oh yeah yeah I love the cosplay girls this this girl <laughs> came and sat next to us in a rather small costume and I think the whole retro area 
kind of went silent suddenly. <laughs> it was, uh, they didn't know where to look. <laughs> Just all looking down at their motherboards. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you call them. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, this coming up again on the weekend of the 14th and 15th of October. This is really the big one, isn't it? Play Expo Manchester. Oh, it's giant. At events it's huge. It's at the old Argos warehouse. Is that what it is? It's, yeah, yeah, oh, okay. where they used to sort everything for Argos. You know how much was in that magazine, so... Yeah, well, it's directly opposite the Trafford Centre, isn't it? Right yeah. in the heart of Manchester. Central. Yeah, and like, you know, we, I remember the first time we went, we walked in there, like our jaw dropped. Like, like we said last week, it is almost like an aircraft hangar when you walk in there. It's, oh, it's massive. Giant, yeah. And we're going to be there right in the middle, actually, on the main stage, which is, again, you know, it's like a rock concert stage. I'm very nervous, Dan. <laughs> it's a big one, this one. <laughs> You'll hold my hand. And, well, there's going to be a lot going on as well. We're going to have a Cygnosis panel that we're going to oh, be hosting. Oh, yeah. Fantastic company. You know, they stretch from the kind of Amiga era all the way to the PlayStation. And, you know, they were based in Liverpool, yeah. which was not far. Lemmings. Oh, Lemmings. Wipeout. Yeah, yeah. All those amazing games. We'll be talking about those. There's also going to be a Golden Eye 20th anniversary panel as well, hosted by uh, Paul Drury, a good friend from Retro Gamer magazine. And this one, I think, you know, obviously you've got like David Doak's going to be there. And you're going to get a chance to go up on stage and essentially challenge the guys who made Golden Eye to their own game. And Golden Eye was such a good title. It was that kind of. It was actually probably the most violent Nintendo title that you could get. You know, it really got the adult audience into Nintendo again. Quite surprising that that actually got cleared for release on a Nintendo Yeah, console, I was quite shocked, especially when you shoot them between the legs and they're, they're falling in certain poses and stuff. <laughs> it's pretty, uh, pretty brutal, that game. And then on the Sunday, I'm looking forward to this one, Specky Sunday. Oh, Specky Sunday. And this isn't a kind of Specsavers glasses thing. This is a, a Spectrum event. And we're going to have Jim Bagley there. And he's going to be talking about, you know, the Spectrum next. And they're also going to have what, Jonathan Cordwell as well, who's yeah. one of the good programmers. Was well, that movie as well, isn't it? The Memoirs of a Spectrum Addict. You're going to get to see a bit of that film. We're going to be talking about that as well. Well, well so. these guys are actually producing games still. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're actively creating Spectrum games and the Spectrum scene is living and very strong at the moment. Well, we've had them both on our show in the past, haven't we, Jim yeah. and uh, Jonathan? It's like, yeah, really, really passionate guys about the Spectrum. This, you know, if you love the Specky, this is one that you cannot miss. And also, uh, Mr. John Hare, another one of our oh, guests yeah. from top, back in the day. Top bloke John Hare is. Now he's going to be talking about um, Sensible, obviously Sensible Soccer and uh, his new game, Sociable Soccer as well. So, And there is more still to come. Now, the thing about play is it is such a good event. And if you haven't been, you need to come and experience this weekend in Manchester. So we're giving away some weekend passes. Now, this will entitle you and a friend to come along and check out Play Expo in Manchester on both days, on the Saturday and the Sunday. And we've got a few sets of these to give away. I've actually got four of them, four pairs. So what you've got to do at some point in the next week is head onto our website, theretrohour.com. You'll find it right there on the front page. No question, nothing like that. It's got to fill in the form. And then... After the closing date, which will be October 6th at midnight, we're going to close the entries. We'll pick out four people at random. Each of you will win a pair of weekend passes to come along and check out Play Expo Manchester for free. Well, it seems to me that the Saturday is being very kind of latest retro stuff and the Sunday is being more traditional retro. So you may turn up and there'll be something totally different going on. The machine that was absolutely hogged yesterday, you may be able to get a go on it then and other machines will be more popular. So, you know, it's really good having both days. And even the market traders and stuff as well. I mean, often they kind of refresh your stock on the Sunday. Oh, yeah, they, they, they might be hiding something and then, you know, bring it out on the Sunday. <laughs> and actually get good prices if you hang around late on the Sunday normally as well. Oh, yeah, L yeah. Bonanza sales. <laughs> so, yeah, obviously just check that out on our website. All the terms and conditions and the form to enter will be on there. Good luck. Now, should we get into this week's stories? Yeah, totally. Like we did say it's a busy week. And Sonic the Hedgehog is just massive at the moment. And what I do love that, I mean, I love Sonic Mania and the official releases, but Sonic has got such a good fan community around it as well. Oh, it's giant. And there's another Sonic the Hedgehog game for modern platforms. Sonic the Hedgehog 2 has been remade. I mean, it's had an HD update before on like another you know, PS3 and the mm. Xbox 360, but this is actual true high definition. Yeah, this is really good. A listener, Scott Rowley, basically linked us. And uh, it's just fantastic. This is an unofficial project, but it's uh, the Sonic 2 HD project. And they've reworked every single animation, every single background and tile, just to look fantastic and HD. You know, I think the original looks fantastic, but it's quite nice playing stuff in the new resolution. Also, it supports 4K. Wow. So, you know, it's going to be absolutely crazy. They've remastered all the original soundtrack. Uh, they've expanded a lot of the stuff on there. 
it just looks fabulous. They've just released a trailer and they've kind of got, stay tuned for more info on their site. But the trailer is mind-blowing. Yeah, and there is an official website for it as well, sonic2hd.com. Like you said, I mean, you know, it is a fan-made project. But even checking out some of these screenshots here, I mean, it kind of reminds me a bit, the art style is a bit like the Sonic 4 game that came out. Mm, yeah. Um, very colourful, be- no jaggies or anything. Everything's very smooth looking. And the animation, I mean, they haven't released any tech specs, but it looks like it's like 60 frames a second. Very, very smooth. But they haven't released any information on what platforms it's going to be coming out on. I imagine it's going to be a PC release. I think it's going to be PC as well. But then that might naturally lead it to be ported onto Android yeah. and other systems like that. Uh, you know, it might be picked up by um, other companies, maybe Sega or yeah. someone like that. You know, that's the thing. I mean, it, it looks so high quality. Well, Sega are very supportive of fan projects, which is cool. I yeah. mean, if this been a Nintendo project, it, it would have been down after day one, wouldn't it? Yeah. But it, it looks amazing, and I think you know, Sonic Two is my favourite Sonic game. Oh, totally, totally. Yeah. Love that game. Yeah, maybe challenged a bit by Sonic Mania recently, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I still need to get my hands on it. You, know? you still haven't got it? Oh, actually, you're still waiting, aren't you, for your... Well, well, I, I've, I've got the PC version yeah. now, but I'm building a PC and the motherboard's broke, so I'm waiting for that. Yeah. So I've got the game, no computer to play it on. Unless <laughs> you're looking at it like, oh! Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, what, what a great time for Sonic, though. He's, I think now he's finally back. He's back, definitely. (laughs) And uh, this is a headline I never thought I'd see. The Commodore 64 virtual reality glasses. Yeah, this is uh, thanks to Chris Hull. He sent us this, and I'd not seen anything about this before. And this just looks absolutely insane. What this guy's done is he's managed to actually create Commodore 64 VR glasses. Now, he's not using a HTC Vive or any of this. This is a cheap Chinese kind of plastic... VR glasses and okay. goggles, and he's got two $26 LCD screens on it, and he's managed to make the Commodore screen fit on the left eye and the right eye to kind of, you know, create that uh, illusion of a 3D or virtual reality. Okay. And then he's running games on it. It's crazy. And he's got a video here where you can actually watch him using it, and he sits there and he loads up the big floppy disk. And then puts on his C64 VR and goes into this, like, virtual pixel world. And you can even download the video and view it on your Google Cardboard. So you can so, see see what it looks like. Yeah, yeah. It looks like in, in, in virtual reality. You know, again, it's just, I love the, the the detail he's gone to here as well. He's got, like, the, you know, the rainbow stripe and the Commodore 64 font. Oh, yeah, no, he's fully skinned it and turned it into, like, a proper-looking piece of kit, you know. I never thought I'd see the day where... Yeah, the Commodore 64 would get virtual reality. Now, they're saying each eye has 152 by 200 pixels in high resolution and uh, 76 by 200 in multicolor mode. <laughs> so it's very low res, but I mean, it's just impressive that the C64 can actually manage like these dual outputs as well. Oh, totally. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good idea, and it makes me think you could do this for lots of other systems. Well, I think... Maybe the Vectrex. <laughs> well, you know, with, with the experience we've got of doing VR and 3D and that kind of thing now too, I mean, the earliest one I think we tried out was the um, Sega Master System one. Oh my we? God, that made me so ill. I, I was ill before, but trying that and, yeah, it, it, close to a seizure. Yeah. <laughs> that was the thing. Well, they were 3D glasses, weren't they? But this is yeah. actually more of a, you know, traditional virtual reality headset by the looks of it. You broke my hand on the microphone. <laughs> uh, but... I think it's absolutely awesome, and I hope. So Commodore 64 has got such a good, like, fan community. And, you know, out of all the retro systems, it's one of the most active, isn't it? You know, people continually making new software and games for it. So I hope this gets picked up, and I hope people actually use this to kind of make new games and new experiences with it. It's it's great, and he kind of says that this project started with his 12-year-old daughter's science fair. So she was kind of studying VR goggles and seeing, and he's like, I know what I can do. Take over the project, Dad. (laughs) And then, you know, (laughs) get your old computer in VR. You know what, though? You know when you were a kid and your parents would help you with your homework? And, you know, you try and disguise it so the teacher didn't know you're getting any help? This is blatant that a dad was helping. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a 12-year-old, doesn't it? Yeah, you can't hide that. <laughs> but yeah, it's really cool. We'll link that up in this week's show notes if you want to find out more. And uh, check out that video on your Google Cardboard as well at theretrohour.com. Now, this next story is quite an interesting headline. Toy Dash turned gaming interface. Now, this is... Do you remember those little kind of toy cars? The um, It was by Tomy, wasn't it? The yeah. Tomy Turning Turbo, it was called. Everyone had one of these when they were kids. Was it like a, a screen that would kind of roll through or scroll through? It was a bit of material that would have the image of a road. And then you'd be driving a car that was projected 
like, well, it wasn't even projected. It was a piece of plastic and it was printed on it and you can move left to right. That's what I remember. I think there's a few versions of it. I think my brother had one where it had like um, little LED lights go up and it oh, kind of, okay. there was a few yeah. different versions of this. But as soon as you see it, I mean, it's essentially that little red cabinet um, about the size of a loaf of bread, isn't it? Yeah. It's got a little screen there, little gears as well, and a steering wheel. The one that they're showing here has got um, Sega branding on it. That's because <laughs> someone's actually turned it into a, a little outrun machine. Oh, yeah, and it works really well. You know, they've, they've, they've found the exact size screen yeah. that would fit in there, and they've, I think they've got an Arduino in there. It's a Raspberry Pi, I think. Raspberry like, Pi yeah. as well. They've got some hardware interface that actually connects with the gear stick. So that you can change the gears in the game and your tiny little wheel. So I guess you could kind of walk around with this, set it up in a hipster's cafe and play Outrun. I would have loved one of these when I was a kid because I loved Outrun anyway. But it, it just looks like it could actually be, you know, a little arcade, you know. Yeah, it looks Outrun like cap. it could be an official product. Yeah. You know, it's it's really well done. And I love these little hacks and conversions they're great this is on Hackaday actually and in fact that they are red as well it looks like it could be like the Outrun Ferrari if you don't look too closely oh totally <laughs> but yeah that's absolutely amazing and again I mean it's one of these things where if the original company that made that or you know maybe Sega look at that now they could release these for like Christmas how many people would buy these if oh, they made tons, yeah, yeah. Re- repurposing old stuff is yeah. a real real good idea yeah even like you know <laughs> it needs to redo the car registration though what is it? Yeah, well, at the moment, it's just the, yeah, the standard one somebody has put in the comments. It should be 5-E-G-A-E-M-U, Sega M-U. Nice. Good shout, good shout. Now, this is some sad news, you know, talking about toys and stuff when we were a kid. You used to go to Toys R Us quite a lot? Oh, yeah, I do. I, I do remember going to Toys R Us. Um, it's a wonderful place. Yeah, I remember no, those adverts constantly. <laughs> um, it was just a big warehouse of toys outside of town and I remember going to get my first Tamagotchi there oh, wow. and, and the lines were giant and we kind of waited and I think it was like 10pm release at night so everyone was really excited. Is that the first year when they were massive? Like yeah and all the kids all the kids were late and we wanted the official Tamagotchi not the fake one so I got it I loved it played with it all night put it in my jeans Mum put the jeans in the washing. Oh, you killed your Tamagotchi. <laughs> killed it on oh. the first night. And I think it was like 40 or 50 quid. And then I also remember as an older adult going there, having a couple of drinks and then uh, kind of playing football in Toys R Us. <laughs> and then, <laughs> you know, just using it as an activity centre and getting kicked out by the uh, security. That was fun. Well, it is sad news that Toys R Us in uh, America and Canada have actually filed for bankruptcy protection. Oh, God. So, you know, they're blaming it on larger rivals like Amazon, you know, taking all their market the share. online retailers, yeah. I, I suppose they should have stepped up, though. Yeah. You know, you know that's the kind of situation that happened with Blockbuster as well, wasn't it? That they were blaming the uh, online retailers and it was because they'd kind of messed up a bit. Well, it's uh, at the moment, at this but, it's not going to affect operations in Europe or the UK, hopefully, for now. But again, I mean, it's kind of like another iconic brand. And I think, you know, like you said then, I remember when Toys R Us used to run those Christmas adverts and I remember going there with, like my mum and dad too. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of yeah. a... It, it wasn't a tradition because it seemed very American. Yeah. You know, but it was... It gave you the Christmassy feeling. Yeah, I remember going in there and seeing like... Uh, I was, me and my brother were really into like Ghostbusters. Yeah. And we go there, it's like the Ghostbusters toys and I remember they actually had quite like, like Commodore 64s and Amigas and stuff in there actually in like nice. the early 90s. Well, the Lego aisle was always a good one as well. There was just tons of Lego and Playmobil. Well, I, I, I'd completely forgotten the Toys R Us did computers and stuff and games because yeah. I was actually only in there about a week ago because it was my goddaughter's birthday. So I went to get her, like, you know, some Disney stuff she's really into. And I walked in there and there's actually, like, a really good Xbox and PlayStation, like, Nintendo Switch aisle. Oh, wicked. And I was like, you know, I said, Samantha, you're going to look at the Disney stuff, I'll be here. Yeah. So, I, and then I remembered, like, oh, I've got these to do, like, Commodore 64s and Amigas and all that back in the early 90s, so... Oh, never knew that. Yeah, well... Yeah, I mean, well, obviously, if I went to get a Tamagotchi, it must have been some level of uh, tech there. Well, at least your mum killed your Tamagotchi. I think mine just starved to death from yeah. neglect. So, you know, at least it was a quick death for yours. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, hopefully they can get Toys R Us saved. Because, again, it's an iconic brand, isn't it? And it would be sad to see the you know, demise of Toys R Us on the high street. I'm sure that it's probably going to get bought up by a, another company. Maybe it was that Smithy's Toys. or There's, there's quite a few other toy places, mm. uh, Hamleys and stuff like that. Well, it's such a big brand. I mean, well, we did say that about Blockbusters. It's too yeah, big to yeah, die, you know. So... <laughs> Stranger things have happened. Yeah. So we'll keep an eye on that. I mean, again, 
It is, even though people don't think of it in that way, it is a video game retailer on the high street or in retail yeah. parks generally, yeah. isn't it? So, yeah, hope, hopefully we can do something about that. Right then, well, thank you for checking out episode number 90 of the Retro Hour podcast. We'll be out again next Friday, available from all of your favourite podcast clients, of course, at RetroHour.com. Do enter that competition if you'd like to come along and join us for Play Expo in Manchester that's going to be happening on the weekend of the 14th and 15th of October. Win yourself a weekend pass. Get on our website at some point this week at the RetroHour.com. Well, I think this next guest is going to be one of the most interesting guests that we've ever had on the Retro Hour. We've had some huge names, but just the amount of stuff Gary Penn's been involved with. It's, it's crazy, and it's like, you know, Frontier Elite was just one of the biggest games. in. The, I don't know what it was like around the rest of the world, but mm. in the UK, it was a f- phenomenon. It was just insane. And then it was the same with Grand Theft Auto as well. I remember playing that for the first time and thinking... This is probably the best game I've ever played. You know, that I could just drive around the city, get in trouble with the crazy cops. Ah, so good. What blows my mind now about like Frontier Elite is it was like an entire universe on a floppy disk. Yeah, totally. How did they fit all of that giant world and procedural generation, all of those commands and trading and everything on one floppy? And it wasn't even a three and a half inch, was it? They might have had it on the old Yeah, it was on the Amiga and stuff, but yeah. Well, let's find out. Let's ask him. Here he is, our special guest on the Retro Hour podcast this week, the amazing Gary Penn. And we'll see you next week. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Welcome to the show, Gary Penn. Hello. Thank you for joining us, Gary. You're welcome. Just to start with, this is a question that we like to open all our interviews with. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. What was your first ever computer experience, and where did it all begin? That would be a long time ago. There were, there were, I used to have friends whose parents would have um, things like pets, uh, as in the Commodore pet, not... Um, not cats and dogs. And um, there was another friend who had a, whose father worked for Wang. So there were so many of us with different formats is the thing to bear in mind. So um, I don't know, pretty much every format that was out, I knew somebody who had one of the formats. And that would be from Commodore Pet uh, onwards. So it would be things like Tatung Einstein and ZX80s and ZX81s and Spectrums, VIC-20. VIC-20 was the first one I owned. And that was a fabulous computer. Even it only had three and a half k, which was a crazy amount. I mean, that's an insane amount. You get more in a uh, credit card chip these days. Well, did you kind of enjoy writing about games or the the, the games culture as a no, child? No, not at all. I I used to uh, I used to write games actually. I used to play a lot of games and write a lot of games. Um, so because I got the the journalist gig from um, Chris Anderson, who he was he was editing a magazine called. PCG, PC Gamer, Personal Computer Gamer, something like that. Hmm. Um, and that was about the only sort of proper magazine. I mean, that CMBG was out, but it was it was just terrible. And, and Personal Computer Gamer was was kind of you know about the games, which is what you want. And it didn't seem to be written by sort of stuffy old men who had no interest in this stuff. Um, but that um, that closed, and I, the reason I got the gig was um, I was used to play a lot of games as well. So I was first to finish then Cipital. I was really pleased with that. Sent in loads of scores to to PCG, so you said the score thing. There was a, a competition to, to find Britain's best gamer. So it was myself, there was Julian, uh, and, and three others whose names I can't remember. And the idea was you went up to London and then you played five games that hadn't been released, I think it was, one on the BBC. I can't remember what the games were either. And, uh, yeah, they, you know, whoever, whoever did best out of that was the winner of the competition. But the competition never got published because the magazine got folded before <laughs> it ever came out. So uh, just... I, I came third. Uh, Julian came second. There was another guy who came first. I can't remember who it was. But then, yeah, so you get this call out of the blue. Um, this would have been, I can't think this would have been, September 84, from, from Chris Anderson saying, oh, um, yeah, you won't get to see the, uh, well, bad news. No um, magazine anymore. Uh, good news, I'm starting a new one. Are you interested in, in a job? Uh, I was like, yeah, I guess I would. So I had an interview with him in a pub in London. I had to write a, a little review, which I, I do remember was, Oh, I picked some of my games. Um, so, yeah, combined with the interview and the, and the test review, um, I got the job. And so did Julian. I, the guy who came first didn't. I don't know if he got interviewed or didn't want it. Or... And that was at the legendary Zap 64. It was, yes. So so we started off down in Yeovil and moved down at the end of 84 and sort of started very, very beginning of 85, I think it was. 
Well, obviously, Zap became some somewhat of a you know legendary title, even to this day. People have fond memories of that magazine. Yeah, it, it's seminal. I mean, it, it, you don't you don't realise it at the time, and it, it took a long time for me to realise um, what sort of impact it had a massive impact on on everything: um, magazine culture, uh, gaming culture, uh, games, uh, the industry as a whole. It was it was really quite important. What was the uh, atmosphere like at Zap then? Well, uh, you're probably somewhere between um, sort of young family, uh, so plenty of bickering, um, uh, a bit like a sixth form sort of common room as well. It was reasonably high tech. I mean, the, the other weirdest thing about it was because both Chris Anderson and Yusuf were way ahead of their game on, on tech. So the um, early Zap reviews, we used to write on these old Casio, they weren't really laptops, but they sort of had a little four-line four LCD screen and a real keyboard. They were, they were, they were pretty funky. So we'd do the reviews on that and then upload them to uh, an Apricot, which I guess was an early PC, I think. And then they, we used to do our own typesetting codes, which is a bit like HTML. And that was cool. I mean, it, it sort of undermined all the union stuff that was going on at the time, but they didn't really care because they, they didn't have any um, union affiliations. So they were way ahead. Um, so yeah, plenty of tech lying around. Um, and all we did really was mess around, play games, um, play more games. Go on CompuNet, if you remember CompuNet, that was oh, wow. great. Ye olde internet. It was great. It was a fantastic, um, fantastic uh, social experiment. Drink a lot, smoke a lot. I mean, it's just, it was always frenzied because we were always working. I don't think we ever stopped until oh. we slept. We used to sometimes sleep in the office anyway, so. What did your parents think when you went and joined this big gaming magazine? I can't remember. They would have, they would have been pleased for me, um, but I don't remember. Cause that's the first time I'd left home, so it would have been quite a... Quite a haul because we had to had to move down. I used to grow up in Berkhamsted, which is in Hertfordshire, and that's um. And prior to that, I'd, I'd only just been working. My dad uh, used to be a, a builder, um, so I was working on the site with him, um, sort of earning cash, which was was really good work actually. Um, so I moved down from there to Yeovil in Somerset, which is a fair trek. So yeah, it was just it just all went it just all went off in in a in a big sort of shaboom, um, and, and ended up in Yeovil in Somerset, uh, the sort of job of my dreams. Because there was nothing else like it at the time. There were, no, there were no other magazines like it. And Chris Anderson was visionary in that regard. Um, so the combination of it's a combination of him, uh, Newsfield, and myself and Julian really that proved catalytic. I think in, in that regard, or, or it, we fed off each other in, in a way that was incredibly um, potent. And then Chris, of course left and started up future <laughs> we did we did get the chance to i think I, I remember being asked about whether you want i wanted to go with him or not i'm thinking oh, i don't know this sounds i like the idea of what we're on at the moment so of course that would have been a an interesting um interesting diversion to start it with with started future with chris and Bob. well i mean you know you did work for um you know amiga power at future and um, later on which was you know a magazine that Again, it's another magazine yeah, that's I, very fondly remembered. Yeah, I, used be, I used to burn out and, and leave in a strop. So I left Newsfield. I burned out when I was at Newsfield because I just worked all the time and, and just had a strop and left one day. And then um, while I was away on unofficial leave, they uh, sacked me, which is understandable. <laughs> um, and then I thought, oh, yes, we just been in the games machine at that point. We just lost the games machine. And then so I thought, oh, get a job or something. So I did all sorts of stuff. My friend used to work at um, Galaxy Communications. So I worked on, he got me a job at Nave um, for a while, which was in Whittam, uh, around the corner from, from Graphgold. Um, I remember the thing I remember about working on Nave, apart from it being uh, <laughs> uh, surprising, um, was it was right next door to a, a sort of, I think it was a tree ball factory. It was just lovely sweet smells one day, but it was also some sort of meat processing factory. Of some sort. So another day you'd have this disgusting stench of, of God knows what. And then I think it was on Fridays, you get both of them together, which is the most oh, <laughs> nice in the world. So you've got pornography in, uh, in one unit. You've got these, these other horrible factories in the other and, Graph girl just around the corner. It's quite a combination. It was. And then so I ended up at Future, because uh, Future, I ended up at EMAP, sorry, because they were... They wanted someone. They wanted. I think obviously, Commodore User was was not doing as well as Zap, and they thought, "Oh, this would be great. We've got what a coup. We can get Gary on this, and we'll also get him to launch something at some point." Um, so yeah, I was on Commodore User for a bit. I did a fortnightly CMVG. Uh, yeah, these things called dummies. Um, I don't know if they still do dummies, but dummies were just like a sort of fake issue that's done sort of properly, but doesn't have all. It just has sort of exemplary pages rather than uh, complete pages, and then they usually repeat the pages. So it has the right sort of feel to it. Um, and yeah, so the idea was CMVG would go fortnightly, um, and they wanted to test the water. So I did a, 
fortnightly version of that, and that went really well. It's because, um, and so, so after after doing that, they said, "Oh, do you want to do you want to launch your own magazine?" And I was like, "Well, yeah, I suppose so." Um, so we did the one, which which turned out really good. That yeah, ended up winning quite a few awards and made lots of lots of profit for Emap, which was very nice. But then I, I got pissed off with that and had a strong left again because <laughs> uh, I burned out. Uh, and ended up a future. The One was a magazine I remember fondly. I mean, it was kind of like, you know, that was peak time for, you know, creativity and games on the Amiga, really, wasn't it? The, those few, few years that you were there. I mean, what, what was it like working on such a title and launching that magazine? Uh, that that was another seminal magazine. I mean, we did a load of stuff that has since been copied to death. Um, it was about the first magazine in the, in the games industry, at least, that had this that large page format as well. Um, I can't remember why I went for that. I was just keen to do something a bit different i think it was either doing a sort of pocket-sized a5 thing just for just because it was different or a large format magazine which caused all sorts of problems because everything was a4 by that point so all the advertising was a4 the layouts were a4 all the all the um all the sort of typesetters and, and uh, printers and so on were, were geared up for a4 so that that threw a bit of a spanner in the works but that took off and then, I, and then yeah pretty much every magazine of the sun seemed to be using the large format after that um, yeah, we had a fantastic rapport with. It was it was interesting with with, with Zap. The rapport was more with the developers. Um, with the one, it was more with the publishers. Oddly, it's hard to kind of explain uh, to people how powerful these magazines were back then and how widely they were distributed. You know, uh, compared to True, I mean, other ones. Yeah, I, I think the nearest you've got today would be the YouTube channels. They seem to have a lot, um, but but they're they're. I mean, they are magnitudes bigger than than we were but it, it, that's about the nearest i've seen that, that has a similar sort of vibe to it where you get that, that really strong fan base um but yeah they, they are <laughs> magnitude larger than we are uh, were sorry but but you know you 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 could have made or broke a game you know uh with one did, one yeah, review we, you know and they did yeah we, we had some horrible um running because we were so arrogant as well um we believed in ourselves so strongly and our opinions so strongly. And it was, it was made worse because so, so many people you met, either readers or developers or even the publishers, but usually they were moaning the opposite. It was like, oh, you're killing our games because the distributors won't take our games because you gave it a bad review. It reached the point where the uh, distributors would only take, was it 80% upwards? I can't remember. I know it got, it got really difficult for some people because of, because of us <laughs> and Crash on the Spectrum side. Um, and we had we we had one guy which at the time was um, it was hilarious, but that's because it was horrible. Um, he phoned up and we'd, we'd effectively killed his company with the, the, their launch games were reviewed so bad. I mean, they were bad games, but they were reviewed so badly um, in Zap I mean, because we were it was scathing when when things weren't good. It wasn't like um, like the other mags where. You know, they might give a, a bad game, might get 50%. No, 50% for us is average. Um, and we, we kind of strayed a few times, but we always went back to this idea that, yeah, 50% is, is average, surely. So, yeah, games do deserve 6%, 4%, and 2%. Um, not not because we're trying to make a point, just because they're so rubbish. Why do they deserve any more than that? Well, I mean, you, yeah. you did kind of continue that in, in Amiga Power as well. I mean, that was a magazine that was never af- afraid to offend and didn't ever pander to game developers or publishers. And again, you know, it, it wouldn't well, be afraid of giving very low scores. Yeah, Stu, Stu Campbell was, was of that. He was cut from the same sort of cloth as we were. He used to do a fanzine as well. He was quite... Yeah, I mean, we you know, used to have a great time because we, again, it was, I think most of the places I've worked, if not all the places I've worked, you end up with a sort of familial environment. And you, you're having a great time and a thoroughly miserable time sometimes because you're bickering like, just like a, a family does because you, you, get, you do get close to each other and you're kind of in each other's space all the time. So Stu and I have some fantastic uh, love-hate stuff going. I'm still in touch with Stu. Um, but yeah, we have some great discussions, really it's a shame we couldn't have recorded them because they were, they were really sort of fevered, um, extreme discussions about games because we used to have sort of similar opinions, but usually not about the same games. Well, I, I remember some of the uh, readers' letters. That would be probably my favourite part of the magazines because the responses would sometimes be really brutal <laughs> or really hilarious, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, but it's, it's, it's funny. It's like a slow motion version of um, chat rooms and internets and forums, really. it's it's You'd have... Someone has to take the time to to write something that would usually take you know about a month, I, I guess, all told. Once fr- from from doing the last issue, the, the the issue goes out, people get the issue, they write the letter. By that point, you're already on the next one. Um, they might write to you, and they may get in 
into the next issue, but usually it meant the issue afterwards. So you're talking about two month turnaround time. Imagine going onto a forum or, or, a, or using email these days where it would take days for it to return. It would be horrible. One of the best things about it was meeting people at the shows because um, the shows were sort of like a, a village fate almost because you knew everybody there from the, the development or the publishing side of things. Um, the stands back in those days were you know, tiny sort of box stands. They weren't that, weren't that elaborate. Um, and they're just loads of readers. So you'd spend all your time um, either posing for pictures and, and signing things um, and just having lively discussions about stuff. So again, it was a very casual atmosphere at the show. They were superb for that. Um, and then, yeah, the letters were sort of the, the paper version of, of, of the meeting people at the show. So you get all sorts of stuff. I mean, I'd, I'd get lots of hate mail. <laughs> um, I think Jazz used to get lots of the, of the uh, fan mail. We used to get lots of pictures of us. That was, that was superb. So, yeah, people would, obviously because of the drawings Ollie did for, for the comments. Well, later on you started to do freelance production for games and kind of uh, doing titles such as Batman. And how did you land? I did. I had, I had another strop when I was at, at, at um, Future. I can't remember what it was about now. Oh, I also met uh, Melissa, my, my life partner. So that sort of changed things. Anyway, so my priorities all sort of shifted. That was it. I, I wasn't in Strop that time. Ah. Okay. So, so I, I left, left Future behind uh, as a focal point and that sort of be, that took a back seat almost and, and started doing all sorts of other stuff instead. So I used to write instruction manuals. Uh, that was meant to be a sideline. That turned into a nothing, uh, sort of non-stop thing because once, the, once people realised you do um, sort of end-to-end instruction manuals, uh, they'd be usually be of good quality, well-written, but I'd also get all the screenshots and everything and sort out all the layout and so on and so on and so on. Um, they didn't have to worry about anything. So that was annoying. I couldn't turn that down because you're freelance. Um, it's relatively straightforward work, but that, that gets a bit tedious after a while. So I sort of branched out to all sorts of things. I did um, uh, sort of design reviews. People had, <laughs> publishers would give you a product right towards the end and they think, yes, could you, could you give our product a once over and give it a go and tell us where we're going wrong and we could get all these things fixed. Uh, and then you'd find out, well, actually, they, they want to release it in about a week's time. So you're not really going to get much <laughs> fixed in a week. Um, and yeah, yeah, one of the other gigs I picked up was um, Konami, freelance producer. That was good. Um, that was uh, working on Batman and some other stuff. I can't remember the well, oh, Frontier. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I was going to ask you about that because that was obviously one of the biggest games of the 90s, working with uh, David on that game. I mean, I, I still remember that that introduction. I, I think I got that on a magazine cover disc at first and watching that opening no. titles. It was like a movie. It was never finished, which was annoying because what happened was... Um, I think I've been on that for about a year or so. And David's interesting to work with because he's, he, he's very opinionated. I'm very opinionated. Um, he's got his way of doing things. Um, but it was a good working relationship. And there's another guy, Chris Sawyer, uh, doing the PC version. He was very good. Um, but yeah, the other problem was uh, Konami uh, decided to get out of, of things like the home computer and Amiga and so on. So they um, they sold uh, Frontier and a few other things to, uh, was it Game Tech? Yeah, Game Tech. Mm. Game Tech, in their infinite wisdom, decided, well, we don't want to get, we don't want to spend any more time on this. We'll, we'll kick you off and uh, we'll just release it. <laughs> uh, okay. This is why it was so full of bugs. It's because Game Tech, Game Tech decided they weren't going to hang around and finish it, as it were. They just get it out. It had some yeah. interesting concepts, that game, uh, you know, like pr- procedural generation. It's one of those, um, when you get called open world games, it's not really an open world game. It's, it's it's this kind of dramatic simulation of, of um, it's a microcosm. I mean, it, it's a sort of self-sustaining thing that you, as a player, interfere with. And I think that's what makes that sort of stuff interesting. And then, of course, years later, you get GTA and and similar games that do the same sort of thing where, where you know, they, they can almost run without you, but it's you turning up and sort of pissing in the soup, as it were. David was very, very clever. He was doing pretty much all of this on his own. I think he was finding it hard because he was, he was only doing the Amiga version, I think, was he compiling for? I think he might have been doing ST at the same time. Mm. Chris Sawyer was doing the PC conversion, but Chris Sawyer was fantastic. He was um, he was so quick. I mean, he'd, he'd he was he was, he'd catch up with with David in no time at all. And the PC version had fewer bugs in it just because it had been rewritten. So he had, the, he had the luxury of not. So David's sort of half making it up as he goes along, and Chris is converting it. And he's got the luxury of, of obviously having a more complete version to. to make work whereas david's sort of doing one thing and then doing another thing and then changing another thing and you've got people like me going oh i think we should be doing this and i think we're doing that he, he's ignoring you most of the time because <laughs> uh, he's got his very clear idea but then of course you've got your publisher side of it the, the, the konami saying oh, we've got to get this finished we've got to give him come on sit on him get up get up there go up to cambridge 
Um, but it's, it's odd when you're doing production because I ended up being a producer at BMG um, years later, um, senior producer at BMG. So that's where I met Dave Jones from DMA and a few others. You only have, there's only so much leverage you have. Um, and even though you control the sort of purse strings to a certain extent, signing off all the invoices or whatever, um, and approving that you know, the milestones approved, um, you also need to keep things moving forwards. And you can't, even if you're there, you can't actually do the work. Um, so there has to be a sort of degree of professionalism on both sides and developers being developers and it being the mid nineties and uh, technology getting harder, um, 3d really taking off. And I don't know, we do, it, I think Britain seemed to suffer quite a bit from well, certainly the smaller developers, um, like sensible and, and the bit perhaps graph gold, they really mm. struggled with, with the newer platforms. Um, and it, it was really sad to see actually they were. Because when I went to BMG, we tried to sign a lot of these um, old acts, as it were, up. So one of the the games we looked at doing was a new version of the Sentinel that ended up coming out through someone else and uh, didn't turn out as I'd have liked it. Um, But yeah, we went around. I think we pretty much went around and ticked off any developer who hadn't been swallowed up by one of the big companies uh, or one of the big developers because everybody was getting bought up at the time. We're trying to sign them all up, but most of the stuff they're doing just wasn't. Sort of suitable for the marketplace at the time, which is a real shame because there's all that, all that creativity and innovation so it's sort of stagnating. Well, it was a massive change around that time, wasn't it? People forget that those kind of like, you know, two or three years in the mid 90s, especially when the PlayStation landed and suddenly everything yeah, had yeah. to be 3D and the games needed like, you know, movie studio size of teams working on them. Yeah, you could feel the change. I mean, you could feel the change with Amiga and ST to a certain extent anyway, but um, they were still manageable in that sense. And also you had the fact that they were home computers. So I mean, I had consoles and home computers as a kid, so it wasn't as if um, I favoured the computers because you could do more with them and it wasn't that you could do accounts and homework with them. <laughs> it was the fact that you could make games with them and, and make all sorts of other things with them that were fun. Um, and consoles, of course, were, were a closed box. and It, it was interesting to see um, how that shifted from consoles to, to home computers um, in, what would that be, early, mid-'80s, I guess? Uh, and then towards the late eighties, yeah, of course. Um, then into the early nineties with with sixteen bit, uh, and the consoles sort of paralleling that with with the eight um, bit consoles like the NES and and the Master System. But they never really got the same sort of foothold. Uh, and it was really the sixteen bit consoles are the ones that seemed to ruffle things a bit. Yeah, it seemed um, to me that kind of the companies that stayed with the Amiga uh, longer than other ones kind of suffered getting into the 3D world because yeah, they had to learn so much. Yeah. yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, it's as if, yeah, they, they didn't move on. And it, it's, it's, a sh- it's a shame in that, you know, there's the, it, it, it's, it's come full circle. When, you, when you've been doing it for so long, you start to see these patterns emerge with over, over great periods of time. Um, it's, it's like geological time. And um, so, yeah, there's imperceptible changes if you're on the outside, but when you're on the inside, you see these, these changes over time. And it, it's funny to see it go full circle again when when um, phones sort of got a foothold with iPhone. Um, that was about 2008, I'd have said. You got this vibe of, oh, my God, I recognize this. This is this is like 20-odd years ago. Um, I, it, there's a similar sort of feel. But, of course, things are better. Um, you've got better tools, better middleware. And instead of typing listings these days, you get loads of sort of indie games that come out for nothing and, People don't get to type them in, but they get to play all these interesting ideas. And there are so many, so many ideas. But it, it, the scale is, is bigger. But in, in terms of um, feel, it's I think it's very, very similar. Because my setting my memory of, of being a kid, because I was so consumed by games, I would I'd play anything on, on any format. Um, you would you would just try and get your hands on anything. So you're constantly playing games. Um, you're constantly trying to find new games, and you try, and and the games then sort of there are lots of clones as there are now, but um, there are also lots of you know, really innovative, interesting ideas because it, it was so formative years where people could people could afford to take chances on on home computers compared to the, the consoles, where they were you know, the, the barrier to entry there was much more difficult. Well, when you were, yeah. when you joined BMG Interactive, you kind of start working with DMA Designs, mm. and they were legendary, of course, for Lemmings. And you yeah. you saw Race and Chase, an early version of Grand Theft Auto. Did you yeah, see I, potential? I was, I was taken on um, not long. Had they signed them by that point? I think they just signed them before I started there. 
because there was a, a a lot of the developers were, were the, well the big media companies were coming in again of course they'd already been in it in, in the early 80s anyway um, and a lot of them sort of left because it, it wasn't particularly lucrative for them um but yeah they um i think virgin and a few other companies were fighting over dma i think virgin offered it was a million for the four games uh, but bmg uh, just came along and quadrupled it and said, we'll give you four million, which doesn't sound like very much now. It was a lot then. They gave you four million. And it turned out to be four games across four SKUs, so four, four platforms, um, you know, each game. So the four games were Race and Chase, uh, which turned into GTA. Uh, Cranium, which was already a game called Cranium, so that became Tanktix. Um, and then Space Station Silicon Valley, which stayed as it was. Uh, and a game called Covert, which was kind of like a Metal Gear Solid style thing and there were yeah so there was there was pc playstation saturn and uh saturn was not a nice thing to to work on something to play with i used to have one i still do i think it, um, had, it was complex to program wasn't it it was a bugger yeah really really awkward uh oh and n64 was the other one sorry um but nintendo uh, lots of lots of the the platform vendors at the time as they sort of still do now they like their exclusives and nintendo said well, we don't like the idea of, of all four of these games being on other other consoles, other formats, can we have an exclusive? So we uh, space space station Silicon Valley ended up being that exclusive. Uh, DMA were struggling, uh, as a lot of the old school developers were. They were just struggling to, to to move things forward. So they were struggling with Body Harvest at the time. That was on N sixty four. That was directly with Nintendo, and that was interesting. I caught I caught a few meetings I had when I was there. Um, when Nintendo came over, they were fascinating. And then a few few a few of the guys went over to Nintendo. And, and hung out with them and came back with some amazing stories about um, how Nintendo did things. So I've sort of borrowed bits of that over the years. They were, they were sort of regaling of, of tales of uh, their post-it, they used to post-it notes and their idea chaining, and they'd have this sort of room where all the post-it notes would be stuck together, and the idea was that you'd stick the post-it notes together and you start chaining these. So each post-it sort of represented a, a tangible version of an idea. And, and the thing I took from that was that that exists that the idea existing outside of someone's head, that tangibility of the idea is is such a powerful thing because it you've made a commitment to expressing it in a in a form that other people can judge. And yeah, they would chain these ideas together, and there, there were all these fantastic tales. And so the whole things like Mario and so on were made, and they had this sort of uh, what I call a, a toy centric approach to the way they did things. So they they would take Mario, and Mario would become the unit of measurement that would. Uh, define the rest of the game and they build the rest of the game around you know how how far mario could jump and run and and his size and so on well i'm quite interested in you know those the early prototypes of mm. grand theft auto when it was still race and chase i mean how different was it to the the finished product <laughs> chalk and cheese um the, the original game was um it was kind of like a cops and robbers game i mean it's kind of like a glorified race game so yeah that was uh, that was more of a uh, cops and robbers thing the open world the city the sort of living breathing city idea that that was running that idea of this sort of open world uh quality was was part of all four of the games um just in different ways um so that was always there but um the criminal aspect of it that's something that evolved over time um as it became clear that being a cop was a bit boring everybody wanted to be the robber um and it sort of went from there so that it's it's kind of thing where so many people are involved in in modifying what it was and what it became, and you can't sort of pin it on any one person. Um, it's, it's the usual cliche of success having many fathers and failure having none. So everybody sort of likes to claim a slice of the pie, but there were so many people who made a difference on that game, um, and it, it was a it was it was an absolute mess for years. I mean, it really it just didn't work in any way because it was such a i mean you're talking about teams of people who've some of them have not made games before having to make a game that's never been made before and moreover it's it's the kind of game that you know even the bigger bigger more accomplished development uh, developers would, would struggle making because it's it's such a complicated thing and we still don't see that many games like it but we see a lot more than we used to well, I heard BMG wanted to kind of keep canning the development of the game. Uh, I did. And again, I was giving you all the story of this and not realizing you weren't there. Uh, yeah, that, that's right. So, yeah, I work for the US division, uh, not the UK divisions, and they had different ways of doing things. So, the UK division, all uh, right. So, the US division is, um, I always think of as more sniping. So, they're more precise about the stuff they're trying to target. Um, and 
they, they were very big on their sort of focus testing, blah, 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 blah. Whereas the UK were more like the music biz. So they, they realized that if you did, you couldn't predict, uh, predict the zeitgeist, but you could sort of hedge your bets by having 10 things that were quite diverse um, and one of them would work. And this is how they used to do the music. Um, they, would, they would bank on one bank rolling the other nine. You know, the nine wouldn't necessarily be failures because they had such a fantastic network of, of sales that they could usually do okay with most things. Um, but yeah, one would become a hit. Of course, they, they, the UK division saw the same as, as we did, which was um, there's scope for this this GTA thing. Well, it was called Race and Chase then. But as it became GTA, you could tell there was this scope for, if this works, this will be amazing. This will be the one that carries the other nine, as it were. Was it a kind of a tough sell uh, the, the, when the final concept came out uh, to get it kind of published? Because, you know, it's a very criminal-based game. You could run over people. No, and... all, BMG were all for it. I mean, they, they, <clears throat> they could see from a marketing point of view that there's, um, there's a story there, that, you know, something you can sell. And they believed in the game. I, they, they, they weren't, um, I found that quite an eye-opener, but they weren't cynical about it. Um, but equally, they did some odd things like got Max, um, I was going to say Max Hedrum. Well, I was going to say Max Hedrum. Max Hastings involved um, to do a lot of the PR, which I think was a mistake. And that sort of worked, I guess. It got, got the game a lot of attention for all the wrong reasons. But all the, a lot of the, the controversy and violence and language, because I ended up rewriting a lot of the text for it, um, that had to be toned down quite significantly. Um, although we did leave the cheat, we did leave all the swearier version in. Um, so if, I think if you typed in I am Gary Penn, it, it gives you the sweary version. Yeah. Well, also, a, a, yeah. another addition to the game was the car radio, which I think was an absolutely fantastic addition. Uh, and the whole, I still remember yeah. all the lyrics of the rap song, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it was Colin's. Uh, yeah, it was nothing like that. It was Colin Anderson, who's uh, worked with at the moment. Uh, I think he. Um, yeah, that was his his sort of audio vision. Um, yeah, it was a lovely idea. So they were using the CD for just streaming the tracks through the through the cars. That was a, that worked brilliantly. I like the way that worked. And of course, the Rockstar since then have taken it much further um, with the fake radio stations and so on. It's really cool. Yeah, it's still the original one is just fantastic. I could listen to the whole thing all day. You know, it's great. It was all original music on the first two games. Um, it was all original stuff. Um, whereas these days, it's all sort of licensed. Uh, so it's a, it's a different sort of vibe to it now. Yeah, I mean, there were all sorts of grand plans for taking that further, but um, never really got there. I think we all left by that point because I thought Gremlin bought us. So, yeah, Gremlin were, were floating uh, the company, uh, public company. So they, uh, GTA didn't fit their remit um, as a sort of family company. It was obviously a bit grim. So they decided to get rid of it. Um, and DMA at the time had quite a lot of debt. It was about 10 million quid's worth of debt, I think, or $10 million. So they gave um, Take Two, as it was then, they gave them uh, GTA for a dollar, uh, and all the debt got written off. It was quite handy. Well, where? GTA 2? Yes, yeah, because that came around and it had like loads of additional fa- features, AI, better graphics, and the the whole SWAT and the army kind of thing. All it was meant to be was um, initially it was just meant to be uh, we were going to remake the first one, just do you know a better job of it. Um, but I think it was Rockstar or T Two as they were at the time, Take Two wanted to do more with it, um, which is a shame because I think just re- even redoing what we had would have. Uh, I didn't end up liking the style and, and the and the theme that we ended up with on two, but it, it's a better game in some respects. That's what's interesting about it. It's much tighter, tidier, um, has some nice additions. I mean, you guys caught up much in the obviously, you know, it, it did cause quite a lot of controversy those games, and I think any opportunity a lot of like the the newspapers get to kind of hate on video games and talk about how they're corrupting the youth and all that kind of thing. I mean, what, what did you guys make of all that? I don't think we were that pleased about it in some respects because we were really pleased that we got the game finished. Um, and you could tell when we were playing it towards the end and it started to take shape that there was something in it. And it had, you weren't sure why it was working because um, you were constantly trying to fix things. Um, but you could feel it at the end. There was something really quite cool about it. Um and you could see that you know one day it would all be in Super 3D, and I think Driver came out not long after that. Yeah, I don't know. I think we were so into the game at that point that the idea that it, it would sell because of the controversy was a bit disappointing. I think we were 
not best pleased about that. But, you know, it, it, it helped get attention. And it was an interesting game. I don't think it ever got to number one. Um, it sold pretty well in the end, but it was in the charts. It was like um, Meatloaf's bat out of hell. It was always in the charts. <laughs> I think it was like in the top ten. It just kept bumbling around the top. But they're actually breaking through the top over time. I think just more and more people discovered it and realized, oh, actually, there is a game in here that's quite interesting. Well, you mentioned about the 3D aspect of it. And obviously, you know, Driver came out, I think, just after. Was it around the time of um, GTA 2, wasn't it? Uh, Driver, uh, yeah. I'm trying to remember. I was... Yeah, I can't remember when Driver was. It was um, about 99, I think it was. Yeah, that'd be around, yeah, it'd be around the time of two then, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Did, did you guys see, because yeah, I know obviously the magazines did kind of make a big deal of the whole GTA and Driver thing later on, but I mean, did you guys see it as much of a like competition? No, because they, they because we were trying to be so ambitious with the 3D, they ended up losing a lot of, of qualities that we liked in the first game. But what was interesting was, was the guys who did Silicon Valley who ended up doing taking on the third one. Um, they were they were incredibly talented. Well, still are incredibly talented. They uh, they they could they saw a way of doing the, the sort of top down. Um, the good the qualities of, of that kind of microcosm. They saw the, the, the scope for combining that with with three D, um, which of course they did. But that's, I mean that was an, an incredible technical feat. Um, so yeah, I think Driver struggled in terms of his microcosm. It wasn't particularly engaging. Um, but that's, that's the price you pay when you have to do all that 3D stuff that they did for, on, on poor old PlayStation 1. Well, uh, one fantastic little GTA mission pack that people don't mention is was the uh, GTA London one set in the 60s. How did that all come <laughs> about? Um, yeah, that was Sam's doing. That was uh, So, yeah, I knew Sam Hauser from... Uh, he used to work for BMG UK, but he was just... Uh, what was he doing at BMG UK? It wasn't anything important. Um can't remember, but we got on really well. Um, that was his doing. He he was really into his um, London gangster films at the time. I think his mother was in one of them. She she was an actress. Yeah, he was quite keen to to take the original GTA code and um, not necessarily reskin it. I think he saw it as more of a it's more of an episodic thing, I guess. Um, but yeah, uh, DMA didn't do it. It was a company in London. I forget who did it now. It wasn't Tarantula. Anyway, um, so yeah, it was that was driven mainly by Sam. But that had lots of uh, that had licensed music. That's some great music in that. Some really good um, some reggae. Oh yeah, some great sixties stuff. And um, also, it was kind of one of the yeah. first time traveling GTAs. You know, before Vice City. Yes, that's right. In fact, one of the one of the grand plans, which we never pursued in the end, there was no need to because GTA Three took off. Was um, it, uh, the idea that you'd have a, a, a what we call a city system? Um, so all the things that you needed to make a city work and feel like a city, and then we'd go back and forth through time and just do different packs. So you'd have what uh, it didn't become Red Dead Redemption, but it would have ended up being Red Dead Redemption. There was a there was a Western one. There was a gangster one. There was. Uh, yeah, Prohibition Gangster one, there was, oh my God, how many were there? There were loads of them there planned out. The idea being that you would um, potentially use the same uh, space, the same city, but just through time. So you get a little whiff of that lovely Back to the Future one, two, three, and you go, oh, wow, I recognize that brand from when I'm playing the Western game. But of course, there's, another, there's, there's very little around when you're back that far. Um, but you could have loads of lovely sort of um, cross-referential, self-referential um, material in them, which would have worked out really well. Also, um, with GTA 1, it was kind of a... People were playing it online, which I, I kind of couldn't believe. People were saying, you know, they were playing it with their 56K modems and uh, like well, doing well, networked yes, games, yeah. Yeah, we did the land, the good land mode. That was one of those things, again, that was that just didn't work for, for until the last minute. But, yeah, that was that was great fun playing. I think four, we had four players in the first one. I think we did eight on the second. I can't remember. But the, the, the multiplayer games across LAN were, were superb. Because you did just tend generally messed around. You didn't do much else. Um, you didn't really play the games properly. Uh, you had so much fun just messing around with each other. But yeah, good, great fun on, online. Well, were there any attempts to make um, a Grand Theft Auto like 3D game by DMA? Or was there any plans to? Well, the, 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 the aim was that it would manifest in whatever was the most appropriate way to do it. So the, even the very first one was made. Uh, I remember there were early demos that I saw of the... Um, geometry um, and the textures all um, projected <clears throat> so you could play it in, in first person for example but it was struggling really badly um, and it wasn't optimized for that anyway so the idea was you'd, you'd go for this helicopter viewpoint to start with because that was the most beneficial 
Um, there was a two and a half D one that we were working on after GTA two or towards the end of GTA two. But by that point, the Silicon Valley team um, had got the the guts of a. Oh, that's right. We're working on a game called <laughs> called GTA called Godzilla Trashes America, a living, breathing city in three D. But you played uh, with a dinosaur like Godzilla, and you grew by eating people and, and animals. Uh, and you just rampage through the city growing bigger and the controls are really nice. It was a Dreamcast, in fact. And that reached a sort of point where we had the dinosaur working and some pedestrians and vehicles. And that was principally the, the core of that team was the Silicon Valley team that ended up doing GTA 3. Well, the Dreamcast was a system with loads of potential that obviously was, you know, underutilised a lot, wasn't it? Yeah, I quite like the Dreamcast. It was um, something about Sega consoles. I liked the Saturn as well. It was a quirky little thing. Yeah, I was at the Dreamcast launch in in Tokyo Game Show. That was that was quite something because Sega were so they were, they were really struggling to to sort of hold it together, and um, you got this sort of feeling of of it creaking and could collapse at any minute. But well, it wasn't GTA Two on the Dreamcast. You could only like play it at dusk or something. It was it was quite different. I think it was. I'd forgotten we'd done a Dreamcast version. Yes, we did. We did a we did a Wild Battle Country on Dreamcast. Well. Mm. I forgot about that. Yeah, there's some great stuff on Dreamcast. The little um the weird little uh, what was it called? The little um, device that you plugged into the controller. Or oh, the VMU. The little CD. Yes, VMU, thank you. So we had some great ideas for that when we were, what were we working on then. Yes, of course, Body Harvest still going by that point because that was struggling. And that was fascinating how that changed from Nintendo sort of helped that change from it being a sort of 3D Defender type thing. It was like a, a kind of weird mix of like a GTA Lite, I guess, but more like Defender because you sort of just used the different vehicles to, to blast the alien hordes. But yeah, Nintendo were pushing to get that. They're, they're quite odd to deal with in that they have very different ethic of, of the way they do things. They kind of want to give you enough leeway to, to, to do it your way. Um, and they're not that pushy. Um, and lots of stuff seems to get lost in translation as well. Um, but it was them who sort of insisted on it being more... And I like the way this worked out, actually. It was There's one thing I've, I've learned from, from that was the idea of perceptual contrast. So you get, um, you get the... If you want the external stuff to feel... To not get repetitive and, and to feel big and spacious, you need to contrast that with interiors. Um, so that's why I end up with the interior stuff. I don't think we did a very good job of it, but um, yeah, the interior stuff was was their sort of idea that they wanted to to contrast the interiors and the exteriors to make the exterior stuff feel um, more uh, grandiose, mm. which is a lovely idea. They use it in architecture, I've learned as well, where you, you'll go from one space to another. And in order to not make the big space as big uh, impractically huge uh, if you make the space you're coming from sort of uh, contrast nicely with that then you get this much better sense of oh wow look how big this place is well gary it's been fascinating getting your stories you know from those early zap 64 games through dma design uh, what are you doing these days then what are you currently working on uh, we're working on a um i've just, have not long come off we're working on crackdown three for a while um we started doing loads of prototypes recently, and um, the one that's working best so far, which is the one that's out there at the moment, is called Autonauts. What does it get compared to? It gets compared to quite a few things. Factorio meets Minecraft meets... It's not really meant to be any of those things. It's You control a little dude who, who can build things out of bits and bobs. So, yes, there is some construction, but you build robots. Uh, and the robots you build, you sort of program them through physically teaching them what to do so you can get a whole sort of farm chain running. Um, and it means it's almost like it's you almost end up playing it to uh, to not play it because you end up automating so much stuff. Um, so we're still building that, um, but what we're doing is we're, rather than sort of keeping it quiet and building it in, in silence until it's finished, we're actually building it because um, it's in pre-alpha, pre, we've called it. Um, so it's out there at the moment. You can download it for nothing, and we release an update every week. And every week there's some new stuff added. And we had, we're very close with the community that we've built up so far. And they're a good bunch. So they feed stuff through. And if it sort of overlaps with the sort of things we want to do, we'll, we'll address it first. So there's a nice little, it's almost a magazine-esque way of doing things with the feedback coming in and versions going out on a regular basis. And it's evolving quite nicely. I mean, we're, it's got something. I think if we can make the most of the something, um, I think we'll have something quite special. But it's, you're never entirely sure. <laughs> Can't predict these things, but it's working out really well. It's um, it's on itch, itch.io, itch.io, um, on PC, Mac, and Linux. 
Fantastic. Well, it's been great talking to you. And if you're ever at Sumo Digital's Nottingham studio, pop down and have a pint with us. Oh, of course. Yeah, I haven't been there for a while. I used to be down there quite often when we were on Crackdown 3, which is great. I, I like coming down there. Awesome. Yeah, because, yes, beer and, and old games. That's great. <laughs> well, Gary, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. I mean, if people want to keep up to date with what you're doing, do you tweet? Have you got a website, anything like that? I do. I've, I'm, on, I'm pretty much on everything. I don't use them that often, but uh, what are we on? I'm on Twitter, just as Gary Penn, I think. Uh, on Instagram as Gary Penn. Uh, <laughs> there's a pattern here. Um, I think uh, Instagram is the one I'm using most because I post a lot. I do a lot of felting um, and a lot of the retro ones. So, in fact, I'm looking at Maria from Jet Set Willy right now. She's been felted. Oh, wow. So, I've managed to felt all sorts of stuff from old arcade games to newer ones. Well, Gary, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. It was really, really interesting. And um, good luck with the game as well. Looking forward to seeing you. All right. Well, cheers. Take care. The power machine or on the freeway Trying to make Cause my MC homeboy Knowing the rules ain't part of his program Finding the right way around this map Might be pretty hard cause he fucked on crack Chief Grand Theft Auto You gotta make a mark and move where you want to Chief.